All right, what's up to all the cinephiles out there? Welcome to another episode of the Marquee Spotlight, coming to you from the always sunny Portland, Oregon. I'm your host, Spencer Bailey, and I'm here with my co-host. Hello, Chelsea Burnett. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning is now in theaters. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to continue bloviating about these movies on this stupid podcast. This message will self-destruct in approximately 45 minutes. Bloviating? Dang, that's good. That's not even a Wordle word. It's too big for Wordle. I like that. Um, yes, we're There's here. There's no to better t- way to describe what we do. <laughs> we're, we're here to talk about... Mission Impossible. It may have come out about a month ago, but yeah, you know, guys, we we had every intention to do this earlier. We were going to do this way earlier. Uh, unfortunately, I was absolutely riddled with coronavirus and uh, out of commission. And I also saw the movie late. So, well, not know. that much I, later than me. I saw it like opening weekend, but you saw it a little bit later than that. But we were going to do this episode like two weeks ago, <laughs> and I couldn't stand for a couple of days. So uh, we're here now. We're going to talk about. Mission Impossible 7, we both love this franchise, we're really excited about it. Uh, And then after me and Chelsea have this talk, I'm going to move over to another conversation with someone we've been trying to get on the show for a while, our good friend Sam Robb, who is uh, just as big of a movie fan as we are, I think. Oh, yeah. But uh, Sam and I are going to talk about Barbie, uh, which I really enjoyed, and so did he, so we're going to have a nice conversation about that. Uh, I wanted to include Chelsea, but... uh, uh, she I haven't is, made it to see Barbie yet. Yeah, ha- I, I, having a kid. We're going to have to do something about this baby. He's really <laughs> cutting into your your movie watching time. Although I have a feeling uh, Barbie would probably really entertain him. Just the, like all the colors, everything that I've been seeing. Like it, I imagine it would probably put him in a very happy state of being for at least a good 15 minutes before he gets bored and then starts or he would scream with joy, which he's been uh, doing a lot lately. So which I don't know if people would appreciate me bringing a screaming baby into the theater. No, please don't do that. <laughs> uh, but it is an exciting time for movies right now. Uh, you know, Mission Impossible 7's out. Barbenheimer is taking the country by storm. Um, I saw both movies opening weekend. Uh, been just, it's such a great time to go to the theater right now. It's really exciting. Absolutely. Uh, before we get into Mission Impossible, I think we would be derelict in our duties if we did not briefly discuss the ongoing strikes mm-hmm. um, in the movie industry, which uh, I think both the Writers Guild and the Actors Guild have uh, very valid arguments that they're making. Uh, if what we're hearing is correct, that these studios really want to start implementing more AI, which not only is not fair to the people that you know, do these creative endeavors mm-hmm. to give us these movies we love, but utilizing AI for writing and especially acting can't possibly be a good idea. No, no. I mean, and really what uh, both SAG-AFTRA and WGA, I think, are asking for are very reasonable uh, requests. And they're, um, I, I it, this is, this is an, a, really really fascinating time in the industry i think this we were building towards this this point for a long time um i i think you know streaming is top of uh top of mind when we we think about um how the industry or where the industry is going and it's what really brought us to this point because i don't think that these contracts with the writers, with uh, SAG-AFTRA, really took 
uh, I don't know if they took seriously enough how at, when the last iteration of the contract or the last time they went to the bargaining table, I don't think they took seriously enough how much of a mega powerful force streamers were going to be uh, in uh, in entertainment. And so they didn't draft the contract to really reflect that or protect the talent. Um, and uh, so this was kind of a long time coming. I mean, my little bit of experience in the industry, I definitely was feeling in the last couple of years um, this, that there was this discontent, uh, this feeling of discontent um, amongst a lot of people. I mean, if we remember there, the, the below the line crew, IATSE, they, they were on the verge of striking too in uh, 2021. Um, but, you know, uh it's no surprise that the WGA and the SAG after strike is getting a little bit more press. I mean, and they actually are striking. IATSE never did go on strike, but, um, you know, doesn't look too good to be a studio executive right now. You're, they're pretty much the baddest villains, uh, their worst villains and they're even putting in their movies. They're being accused of saying some pretty messed up things. What, what did someone I mean, no one's really acknowledging that they said it, but I think there's a rumor that someone said that they want their they'll let the strike go on until they see writers lose their homes. I did so, see that. Yeah. I um, mean, yeah. And people need to, especially with the actors, people need to realize like every actor is not Matt Damon. No. Yeah. Every actor is not, you know, Kate Blanchett and Emily Blunt and Tom Cruise. There's a lot of actors out there that, True working, a, actors, true working actors. True working actors. They don't make a lot of. I saw an article this morning about a guy who he's been trying. He's in his early forties. He's been trying to get into you know successful acting for a while, and he's like cleaning buildings right now, mm-hmm. trying to make ends meet. He just got on a couple of shows, and then the strike happened. So this is affecting a lot of people uh, that living modest paychecks, just like the rest of us. And they're the people actually creating these things that we want to see. And the people that are just funding it think they, I don't know, sounds like they want to have more control than they should and are willing to dole it out to computers, which just seems like a really terrible fucking idea. Yeah, I think that will bring on a, a wave of, uh, a, or just a real downturn in uh, quality um, on the whole. And, um, like the golden age of, of TV, I think that'll be behind us. I, I don't, I don't see how AI is, I, I, I just don't have enough faith in that, or I don't want to have faith, I guess, in AI that they could, they could create, uh, content that a a real human being that has a passion for the industry could do and for storytelling. So, um, and when I was talking about, I don't think that the previous contracts really took into consideration what streaming does to the industry. Um, really, that comes down to residuals uh, because the 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 way that writers and actors uh, were used to receiving residual payments, those were fairly generous paychecks that they would receive whenever their work would be rerun in one way. If if like a show was in syndication and physical media sales, mm-hmm. yes, but uh, the the formula that was created for how they would pay out residuals when it comes to content being acquired by a different streaming platform or, or played by a, a subscriber to a streaming platform, it's, it's just pennies. I, I it's, it's kind of an, uh, no one can live off of that amount or can, uh, depend 
on what that residual payment will will be. They they you you just can't live off of that. So um which I absolutely think there is a very, very, very fair and strong point to say that there really needs to be a better a, a better formula created for how they're going to uh, how they're going to track those payments for for those people that that put hard work into uh, something that is being enjoyed time and time again. Yeah. And you know, I know that in the movie industry especially creatives used to have a lot more power and then famously the Heaven's Gate situation and that all that changed, but uh last year Tom Cruise and the director of Top Gun Maverick had full control and look what happened. And now as of this weekend, Barbie is a billion dollar movie mm-hmm. and Margot Robbie, Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig had full control pretty much. Well, almost full control of that movie. So just shut up and get out of the way and let these people make these movies that we love, pay them what they're, uh, they deserve. And let's just move on amicably here. Here, here. Yeah. One other little side point I was going to bring up about this that I, I think is interesting is they're working on these interim agreements with SAG-AFTRA for um, independent projects that are currently in production or in pre-production about to start. Um, there are these interim agreements they're working out with SAG-AFTRA to uh, continue to make the film as long as it's independently produced. But um, that's a that I, I've been reading that it's kind of a sticky subject it's like well yes we're making these outside of the studio system but it doesn't it seems very disjointed if we have some members of sag after that are still working during this time while others are on the picket line it's like it's not exactly being a scab by doing it with this agreement that's being formed but it's like should the these interim agreements even be made but then you can see it as well, here's at least some hope for those that are out of jobs currently, the below the line crew that can't work as long as no work is being done because actors and writers are on strike. It's like, well, at least we have some type of uh, work that is being performed. It's just, uh, I don't think there's any, I can't come down as a cl- on a clear yes or no on these interim agreements, but I can see it from both sides. Yeah, I mean, I just think we got to let the dust settle and see what happens. Yeah. Um, but hopefully uh, some some kind of deal that works for the people that deserve it comes out of it. And by the way, you know, I know we, you know, I just brought up the Heaven's Gate stuff, but it swings both ways. Like, let's look at some of the decisions Disney's made the past couple of years. They've not been working out. and it, it, They just thought they could ride cash cows, pump out generic bullshit, and the money keep flowing in, and it's, in, you know... It, they're getting bad feedback on these movies. Uh, so I think it's time to give the creative minds the reins again. I agree. I agree. All right. Well, we got that out of the way. Uh, like we said, super exciting time for movies right now. By the way, I just want to say, because I don't think I'm going to get another chance to to bring it up, and it, it makes less sense now, but it would have made sense to bring it up when we were going to do this two weeks ago. Uh, I did also see the new Indiana Jones, and I thought it was pretty good like i i don't know what all the the negativity and like mm-hmm. lack of views is about it's not as good as raiders and last crusade but it's it's like on par with temple of doom it's uh, entertaining yeah like what impl- what doesn't work in temple of doom uh dial of destiny does better and what dial of destiny kind of doesn't do well temple of doom does better so they're about on par it was a wide chasm better than crystal skull so i don't know nice little mm-hmm. send-off uh, Harrison Ford. I know he's like old, but I think what worked in this one was like, 
you know, Crystal Skull, he was old, and he uh, it's, it's really hard to buy. He's still going out there and doing adventures. Well, in this movie, he kind of gets pulled into it reluctantly. Uh-huh. So that makes a lot more sense. So I don't know. Like, have some respect for Harrison Ford, guys. Go back and look at that guy's 80s and early 90s run. We don't know how good we had it. Oh, they don't make him like Harrison Ford anymore. So anyway, jumping into Mission Impossible. So um, I love this franchise. You and Micah are huge fans of this franchise, like bigger than me even. Um, and we both did a rewatch, I think, before Dead Reckoning. And it was kind of fun to go back and watch some of them. Um, I remember when the first one came out in the 90s, the, the, the Palma one. I uh, didn't see it right away. And uh, I, I think the first time I saw it, I was too young, didn't fully appreciate it. But like, it's aged very well despite the uh, dated tech and stuff mm-hmm. like that. No, I, uh, I, I, and I, I, if I remember correctly, it was, I mean, it kind of pulled Brian De Palma. It, the, the, meeting of or the joining of Brian De Palma with this Mission Impossible franchise, which was a television show in the 60s. Is that correct? Uh, I think 60s 70s. or 70s. 60s, 70s. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it brought some like real gravitas, like having his name behind it. Um, and uh, it it definitely looks it's very much uh, honoring his his style. I just went back and rewatched, or not rewatched, but watched for the first time, Dressed to Kill and Body Double. And he definitely has a, a distinctive style. Which, Absolutely. Um, which I I think, you know, lent itself very well to this, this uh, kind of caper-like story of Mission Impossible. And, um, and I saw... In Dead Reckoning Part One, there was a lot of hearkening uh, back or homage. Absolutely, I thought, to, I'm uh, so glad you said that. We're, we'll bring that up when we get to Dead Reckoning. So I really appreciated. I was I really liked that of, about it. But um, uh, I, as the franchise went on, I definitely think the movies got more bombastic. Felt like it was still trying to find its groove like they maybe seem a little um i don't know um sporadic is not the right word i'm looking for but they just a little disjointed maybe Sure, it was trying to find an identity and i think when they brought in brad bird to do ghost protocol correct that was his movie right yes that's when i really think the series found its uh f- found where we have it now absolutely today, so. yeah well, it's so funny you're talking about you just watched some De Palma movies. I just rewatched uh, Carlito's Way. Um, and yeah, I mean, his camera work is just so... You could mute the TV and still understand what he's going for. His use of color, you know, the way he squares up on people ju- mm-hmm. or zooms in on people just right. Uh, you can get what vibe he's going for even without without the dialogue. Um, and, you know, what was so smart, obviously, it's been talked about to death in the first one was bringing all these famous faces in to be on Tom Cruise's team and then killing them all <laughs> in the first 15 minutes. Yeah. It was so smart. Um, famously, they asked Peter Graves uh, to reprise his role from the TV show. But when he read the script and saw that he was going to betray everyone, he, you know, he's like, oh, my, my character would never do that. Mm. They told him to kick rocks and brought John Voight on to play his old character. But, um, you know, that roping down from the ceiling scene. Oh my gosh. It's still just like 
You're just holding your breath. Absolutely. I mean, and you're you're zeroed in on every sweat droplet that's you know could potentially bust. Uh, catches Ethan the one and, with his uh, hand. Oh, yeah. It's uh, so well paced and uh, shot, and um, it. Uh, I think that remembering that scene kind of forgives some of maybe the other kind of dated stuff you were talking about. From, yeah, like yeah. the websites and stuff. Um, two was actually the first one I saw in theaters. Um, it, it was getting a lot of buzz. The promos of uh, Cruz rock climbing. And the ponytail. Uh, that was kind of around the time he had the yeah. ponytail. And uh, the soundtrack was huge. And I remember seeing it in theaters and even then going, I don't know about this one. And now I, I gave it a rewatch, you know, as I did all the movies. And it's just so laughably bad. It's insane. It, I mean, it's it's John Woo. And it, yeah, it feels like face-off. It's mm. so weird watching Cruz or Ethan Hunt do slow-motion front-flip leg drops with doves and fire. Like, what is going on? <laughs> He's, like, doing front wheelies on a motorcycle and one-shotting gas tanks to blow up cars, which is just not a thing. Um it's man, it's just it's in, it's just pure insanity. I think that was maybe like right at the uh, towards the t- yeah, that was like at that maybe peak of what those 90s action films were before we all got a little bit of like burnout from it. But Absolutely. um and uh and then 3 with JJ bringing JJ Abrams and and um you know, I mean I credited Brad Bird, but I do think JJ Abrams brought a really uh Yeah. He he, you know, brought that alias slickness to it. I don't know what it, what it was, but uh um and I, I you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman It's fucking as, sick in that uh, movie. Yeah. Elevates everything he's in. I really like uh, Carrie Russell in it. The little, the little uh, bit she has um, as an agent, um, and uh, she pulls off having her brain exploded from the inside really well. <laughs> yeah, three is a little better than than two. Um, the parts of her cool are really cool. Like I said, I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman's fucking sick in that movie. And a lot of the complaints are like you don't really know anything about his villain or his character. Um, and I'm okay with that because, like, he's so good in the movie that I I don't need to know anything. Like, I get it. He's just, you know, the whole scene where he's just like, I'm going to find her. I'm going to hurt her. <laughs> it's just like, oh, my God, I'm terrified of you, man. Mm. Um, but, the yeah, the brain bomb was a really cool touch. Lawrence Fishburne just showing up for this one movie, mm. and he's, like, good in it. Uh, don't really know the, the MacGuffin they're going after. I don't really know you know what the bad guys want what's it what was it i don't remember what it's called the uh i can't yeah, remember but but that's just it's like nobody cares it, it's just, you know i don't know i i, I think i'm on record i think jj abrams is a is a total hack like, uh, i like his star trek movies but like trying to make ethan hunt for no reason like want to settle down with a wife that's such a jj abrams thing and i'm so and it just showed that in the in the next ghost protocol they just hand wave it away yeah, I'm. I'm actually. I'm, I was about to say I didn't know if it was controversial for me to say that I've never really cared about his marriage with Michelle Monaghan in the movie. Of course movie, you don't. So um, it makes no sense to the character. Yeah, I, I could kind of. I think she's lovely, um, but I. Uh, and her brother played by Aaron Paul. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Can't forget. Um, but yeah, I've never, never really thought that that um, added much to the thing. 
when Ethan Hunt cares about his crew or his team he works with, I think that to be is so much more compelling than yeah, care. yeah, yeah, absolutely. But so. You're right. Ghost Protocol comes along, and it's just a it's a vibe. It's a total vibe that you're like, oh hey, we've got something here. Because I think people almost kind of checked out because two and three were not not great. I think three did really well, but people like saw what his shortcomings were, and then four came out, and it was like kind of word of mouth. Uh, and then, of course, the marketing of the the Burj Khalifa, but uh, well, also Jeremy Renner star rising uh-huh. and bring him in, and I think he's like I think he is really underutilized in the series. I think like, he's well suited. Uh, for, yeah, sorry to cut you off. Yeah, no, 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 you're fine. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just like like the the few moments he gets to be badass in Ghost Protocol is awesome, yeah. and then they don't really utilize that ever again. And I think he. Um, I mean, honestly, I think he's a good um, counterpoint to, uh, to well, more of a compliment, I should say, to Tom Cruise. I think they have a similar stature. Yeah. I think uh, they have a similar intensity to them sometimes. So uh, I, uh, I, it really worked for me. Yeah. He's great. Uh, Ving Rhames being a consistent rock for mm-hmm. Ethan Hunt's great. We didn't bring up in the third one, Simon Pegg showing up, who has, has been a great addition. And famously, he made a joke about well, yeah, maybe this time next year I'll be in Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise, and then he got cast in the third one. But um, did do you know about who they were going to cast in the Benji role? No, Ricky Gervais. <laughs> there were oh, it was man. very close, uh, but they made the right decision. Yeah, with Simon Pegg. But yeah, I think it would have worked. I really like Ricky Gervais, but Simon Pegg has like a sweetness to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think Ricky Gervais would have been a little funnier, but I, I think that Simon Pegg's balance, yeah, is, is really good. Um, the only thing I will say about Ghost Protocol was uh, we got a really great villain performance by Leah Sadu, and then she's just they don't they didn't keep her around, mm-hmm. which I really wish they would have because she's a great villain. Um, Ghost Protocol is fantastic, and like I said, they I, I say hand wave away, but they did like gently relieve us of the marriage yes. storyline, and um, we got the the masks. Came back, uh-huh. you know, the, they, they always use the math. It's never overused. It's always used perfectly. So smart to, to bring in Brad Bird to do that movie. I mean, he made the, those The Incredibles. It's, it's one of the best Pixar movies. And I just think he is such a master of like building that kind of uh, action uh, on screen. So uh, I, I thought he, it, it was really fun to see someone move from animation into um, live action and so seamlessly. Yeah. So, so they they ride that wave into Rogue Nation with Chris McQuarrie, who's just the the franchise director now. Mm-hmm. Uh, bring in Rebecca Ferguson, who just heart palpitations. <laughs> oh man, I tell you, like that first scene where she's like sniping at the opera and like the way she's got the gown on. I'm just like, I had to like dab my forehead. Oh, geez. Uh, She's, but she's great. She's also an uh, just awesome actress. Like she's yeah. so good in Dune. It's and, wonderful to see her like getting her due now. Yeah. Yeah, she's excellent in Dune, and uh, you know they they keep they keep that vibe from Ghost Protocol going. Uh, they got Ethan Hunt kind of going, um, well, rogue, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, bringing the new villain faction uh, that's just super ruthless. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing that I I kind of raised my eyebrow at was the the underwater scene because I was I was just all I could think of 
He's got all these gadgets. He's got a gadget for every situation. Yeah. And he doesn't have something that can help him breathing, some kind of breathing apparatus uh, down, down in that water. I don't know. I, and I, um, this is the one that I have spent the least, well, that in Mission Impossible 2, uh, I, I know the least. So I really want to go back and rewatch, uh, that, that is the fifth one, right? That yep. we're talking about. Yes. Mm-hmm. The fifth one. Um, but I, cause I, you know, we're building up to fallout, which I think fallout is what really, uh, turned me and, and Micah on. To, That's cinema, yeah, baby. Yeah. So, um, that, uh, if there, I, I can talk a lot about Fallout. I'm very, let's just do very it. well versed just go, in that. Go, go. Let's, let's go. Uh, Henry Cavill. Henry Cavill. Killer mustache. Absolutely. Killer mustache. A mustache that I'm sure inspired like hundreds of emails between studio executives when they there was the battle of they needed to bring him back for reshoots for Justice League and they wanted him to nix the mustache and they wouldn't allow it. So. We don't need to talk about that abomination. <laughs> um, no, I mean, Henry Cavill just was this he was this great intimidating presence in the movie and i th- i think it's be- i think it's his best performance he's ever given so, i'd agree with that um, I, I mean he's pretty good on the witcher that show is just not very good yeah um yeah fallout is it took me way too long to finally watch it i'm just wow wow yeah. wow just yeah. so incredible and you know we didn't talk too much about uh, Cruz's, um, you know, endless streak of trying to kill himself with these <laughs> like yes. cheating deaths with these stunts, but uh, you know he held on to the plane in Rogue Nation. We didn't bring that up, but the Halo jump and Fallout. N- not just the fact that he really did a Halo jump, but how they filmed it mm-hmm. is one of the coolest like movie making things I've ever seen. Oh, you're right there in it. Yeah. I don't, and I don't know how they, um, yeah, it's, uh, I, it is, inc- it's, I think these movies, the action is, is so gripping and believable because of you've got, uh, I think an actor that like fully trusts his director at the helm with Tom Cruise there. And also that he just, he's willing to put himself on the line for, for, uh, there's like, you, you know, it, it just, it really gives it this, like, you're, you're right there in the action kind of doc. I don't know. Cinema verite kind yeah. of feeling. Yeah. And a sea of too much CGI. Um, these stunts he does are just really incredible. And, uh, but Henry Cavill, amazing. I was a little disappointed, you know, after seeing the trailer and the commercial so many times of, Henry loading up his arms. Yes. Uh, every time I saw the trailer, I was like, "Oh, he's about to he's about to whoop some ass in that bathroom," and he doesn't. Kind of gets his ass whooped. <laughs> but I think that's a it's kind of uh, a, a nice subversive, like the, you know, sort of surprises you uh, by it. But because uh, it's not even if you're such a brute like he is, it goes to show that, that all the muscle doesn't always, you know, sure doesn't matter. Well, his character but, wasn't very smart, which I mean, I guess lends to his radical ways, but. Uh, uh, we did not mention in Rogue Nation the introduction to Alec Baldwin, who's really fucking good in Fallout. Mm-hmm. Really good. Yeah, yeah. He and Angela Bassett are both great. Oh, um, Angela Bassett. So. Yeah, she's super underappreciated actor. Um, but speaking of introductions, we get the uh, 
very intense Vanessa Kirby shows up in Fallout. Oh, I I lo- I love her as the the White Widow. She's perfect. Yeah, like perfect with her brother bodyguard. Um, Fallout is just it's so great. And, you know, we even get a callback to Michelle Moyhan. We see she's got a new husband. She's helping people that need it, and uh, let's tie that that mistake off with a bow. And Sean Harris with that great gravelly whispery voice of his uh, playing um, uh, the villain that I am blanking on now, but uh, he's, you know, he's behind the the big, there's always a bomb, isn't there? But, um, but it, <laughs> in fall, I just, uh, I think he carried over from Rogue Nation, correct? That was, uh, uh you know who I'm talking about? The, yeah, the, yeah, I can't. Yeah, the, the he's the redheaded actor, yes, right? Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, he played the king in um that movie. We oh, talked uh, Green, to, Green, Green Knight. Knight. Yeah, yeah, he was king of Green Knight. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, I just I didn't want to skip over Fallout without giving him credit because I I just well there there's just so much happening in Fallout. You know, you can't. Um, yeah, it's a long uh, movie. It is long, but um, and there's just I think every act. Yeah. just sings in that movie. They they give there's something for everyone in it. And, awesome car um, chase. Yes. Yeah. Which wow, they really doubled down on in and Dead Reckoning. Excellent um, transition, so, Chelsea. Yeah. Let's go right Dead Dead Reckoning one. Honestly, I mean Fallout's the pinnacle of the series, but I think Dead Reckoning is half a notch behind it. There, it, I, I think I rated them the same in Letterboxd. Um, I mean, I was Dead Reckoning was fun, so I got to see it. Uh, certain regal cinemas have this thing called Screen X. So you got the movie screen. And for certain parts of the movie, it'll run up the walls. So you're completely immersed. Your peripherals are totally in. So all the big action scenes, it kicks the, the Screen X on, which was a really cool experience. I've been wanting to do it for a while. Um, I mean, right away you get the... By the way, we're going to be spoilery. This movie's been out for <laughs> almost a month. So, you know, we see it's this AI... Um, computer, which is scary, and it's you know a little too topical for real life. Oh, very much. So prescient of them to yeah, the timing of this movie. And we get, uh, you know, Tom steps out of the shadow. Ethan Hunt steps out of the shadows, gets his message, which gives a little, little insight to his past. You know, with the with the first his memory he has the first of many, um. Christ-like imagery. Uh, the the woman who dies was named yes. Maria, Mary. You know, um, you know. There's a key that's shaped like a crucifix mm-hmm. that everyone's chasing. Um, but his. So first of all, first cool thing we get introduced to Carrie Ellis, who we don't see enough anymore, no. and the return of uh, Henry Zemek, who was in the first Mission as Impossible, Kittredge. the Kittredge, yeah, and. I like how he chews his words. He's, yeah. <laughs> That's a great descriptor. Uh, absolutely. He's so like, he's not totally bad, but he's so biting with everything he does. Um, Ethan Hunt gasses the room, takes the mask off, you know, shows him that he's even got the upper hand over the agency, which is, which is really cool. Right into uh, Ab- Abu Dhabi, uh, airport which was so cool to me because it had the same intensity as the big action set pieces without any action oh absolutely and um i i you know i was reminded a lot of uh the thomas crown affair in the way that they were 
Are, are you you're familiar with that one, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, I've and, seen the Pierce Brosnan one. Not the yeah, original. I've only seen the Pierce Brosnan one too. But so I was thinking of that and how it ends with he's has all the lookalikes in the museum passing the briefcase around. It, it just it kind of gave me flashbacks to that and in the way that we're following these characters who are losing track of, yeah. of who they're who they're trying to follow. We're introduced to the. Um, Grace character who is Haley at, Atwell. Yes. Yeah. Listen, sitting in that theater and I had got to keep seeing Rebecca Ferguson and Haley Atwell on the screen. I mean, I was sitting going, my my word, I have the vapors. This is uh whew. I know this we've got some beautiful brunettes in this movie. And uh and then you've you've got uh the Vanessa Kirby just thrown in there too for She's a, a little, little too extra. intense. <laughs> she she yeah, she seems a little too wild, but uh, I, <laughs> I appreciate what she's doing. I do want to give the makeup uh, team uh, some major props for how they do her eyelashes. It is incredible. I think it really is such a great character um, addition to her. Like they give Vanessa Kirby these spider-like uh, eyelashes, which I just think are, and they really make her eyes extra intense, which I just, I just love. And but I, um, not to jump ahead, but I also want to talk about she's so talented because, and I mean, she's an Oscar nom. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a slow year, but still, yeah, very talented. So for her to reprise her role as the White Widow, but at the end of the movie, you know, again, spoilery, Haley Atwell's character puts on a Vanessa Kirby mask, so Vanessa Kirby has to act. Like somebody pretending to be her character, and she yeah. kills it. I always love when you, that's such a good like acting challenge. I feel like yeah. for, I mean, going back to Face Off, <laughs> kind of, <laughs> but uh, I think she maybe is a little more subtle, pulls it off, but maybe a little better. Um, we didn't mention the scene in the desert, which I just wanted to quickly say when Ethan Hunt has to go find um, Rebecca Elsa, Ferguson, yeah, through the through the sandstorm, which yes. is awesome. It's so great, so 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 great. Um, and it, it gives a little sweet moment with uh, Ethan sitting on that horse, stroking him, calming him down. And then you get to see him as he's sitting on the horse, seamlessly stand up. I, I just like that moment. But um, gosh, there's this movie is if there's one gripe I have with Dead Reckoning, it was that you never really got a chance to breathe or, or catch your breath. I, I should say it was just kind of right into the next yeah. action. If we're going to talk about shortcomings, I mean, he's not perfect. I mean. Um, I really like you say Morales. I've seen him and mm. said so he's awesome in the first season of Ozark. Um, but you could tell, I mean, Chris McQuarrie and Tom Cruise are pretty open about how they kind of made things up as they went along, mm. uh, which is what they've done with the other movies. Um, him just representing this evil AI, uh, I feel like they could have been, it didn't feel big enough. I feel like they should have gotten somebody really big to be the villain. Uh, but but no complaints other than that. I mean, he's fine. He I does was, a good job. I, I was very, I, I would say, yeah, I that took me out of the movie because I was like, did I miss something about him? Like, I yeah. didn't quite understand that there was a lot built up around him, but I didn't understand this, the stakes behind it. So I also don't care for that they killed um, Rebecca Ferguson's character, mm -hmm. and it was so obvious on top of that. But I have to say, one of my favorite things about Rebecca Ferguson in these movies is she sells fight choreography so well. I mean, there was the one where she's chasing down uh, the villain, Gabriel, and uh, another biblical yeah. reference. And like she's fighting guys off along the way. It, her her movements are so crisp. You'd think she'd been doing action movies for years. Yeah. She's, she's so good at that. I mean, she seems like a badass agent. 
I think she has a, a strong um, dance background, so I think that that might. I think she was like a Michelle Yeoh. So, um, Michelle, I, Michelle Yeoh and Mark Maron talked about she she was a dancer, and that's why she transitioned to the fight movie. So, but she's like, this is just like dancing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree that I don't think that that death uh, did her service. It, it was a all. bit of a slap in the face um, to just what a epic character she was. Um, I wonder if she just didn't want to do anymore. But there's only going to do one more. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Some new new faces too to the franchise. Like I Shea Wiggum. Uh yeah, oh my man. gosh. I the first time I ever saw that guy was in um Silver Linings Playbook as the brother. Really? It wasn't Boardwalk Empire? Well, because I didn't start watching Boardwalk Empire until like last year. So yeah, then I called I, I called him uh, Eli for years. Yeah. I couldn't think of him as anything else. But what a great character actor, and it's so fun to see him in this this role um as the somewhat foil to Ethan Hunt but you know he he kind of is blumbering through it which is, and has he's just got a great face yeah I uh, really love Paris uh the like henchman Palm, Palm yes yeah. the henchman to uh Gabriel and the the entity and um who it looks like has probably survived her mishap at the end of the movie yes and leads to I think a really fresh uh fight scene I haven't seen before in that alleyway uh, that she has. Oh, it was uh, awesome. With, uh, yeah. It was awesome. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, you bring up these new characters and that's something I want to talk about. The movie actually did really well. There is a lot going on and it's all seamless. Mm-hmm. It never feels clunky yes. or cluttered. Yes, that's a perfect word. Seamless. You know, you've got Ethan's chasing this, chasing down this key for this AI and he meets, a new, you know, Haley Atwell and he sees a villain from his past and Shea Wiggum's coming after him, and uh, Paris is trying to get him, and it all is just it's it works so well. Absolutely, absolutely, and I really, really like that they didn't try and force a romance uh, between Ethan and any of these women. I mean, there's some kind well, of kind of did with with Becca Ferguson. Yes, they you can tell they have a past of some sort, and it's. Beautiful. I think the the love they do have for each other. You see, they have this moment where they're in Venice together, and um, he's hugging. They're hugging each other, and I thought that was perfect. I didn't need any so more good. than that. I didn't need to see a kiss. I no. didn't need. Um, yeah, she and, sold the way she smiled and hugged him. God, she sold that so perfect. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, all right, can we talk about the train? Yeah, we can talk about the train. Oh my god, uh, it's just like the whole train scene is great. All the tension with. Haley Atwell, or uh, what's her name in the movie? Grace. Grace. Grace pretending to be the White Widow, and Tom Cruise trying to catch up while Benji's telling him, you know, mm-hmm. where it is. By the way, before leading up to the train, Ving Rhames having this great moment where he's like, "I gotta go dark. I'm gonna be working in the shadows." Analog. And you know, it's gonna lead up to something in the last movie that's coming. Yeah. So all the train stuff's great. You know the 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 scene we've all been waiting for of Ethan Hunt. Driving the motorcycle off the cliff, which I think the the trailer showing how they did it was more exciting than the actual the movie. But um, him hilariously smashing into the window at the, just the right moment. But the train going off the cliff and them jumping from cart to cart and once the kitchen. One of the coolest fucking movie moments I've seen in years. Oh, it was. And I really, really like, too, that they made a clear point of, like, the Orient Express. You know, it's it's this lo- locomotive engine, like, old school, as we're trying, as Ethan and his team are trying to move away from anything that's 
plugged into tech at all because of the entity and the threat there. So I think using this, this classic kind of train, um, mode of transportation was, I, I thought a really cool, um, uh, it was clever of them to, to put end the movie with that. And yeah, jumping from train to train as it's falling, Micah said it reminded him of something from Uncharted. And it, I, looking back, yeah, it kind of reminds me of something you would play in a video game where it's like, you got to keep pressing a uh, circle, jump to the next before it falls. <laughs> but it, I, it's really fun. And, it's so much um, fun. Yeah. I was like, I think I was grinning. I was just like, this is so cool. I'm just like gripping my chair like as he's throwing grace up mm-hmm. and then the uh the piano falls yeah. uh, it was just is awesome and then they tied up some things but some things are are not tied up they've got the key yeah the villain doesn't have the key what's next we don't know mm-hmm. um just can't wait to see how they wrap up this franchise so hey look our one two three scale this is a three. Oh, absolutely got, go see this before it leaves theaters man and if you can do a screen x since oppenheimer's Bogart and all the IMAXs like do screen X. It was really cool that the, the the awesome car chase scene in Venice. Oh, it was just too, I'm, I was wrapped around me. The sandstorm was wrapped around me. Uh, the, all the stuff on the train, like all my around me. I mean, screen X was really cool for these big action scenes. That's awesome. Did you feel like the sound level was okay? Because that was yeah. one. Com- Micah and I felt, and maybe it was our theater we saw it in. The sound was just a little too assaulting at times. Like, kind of blew us away but we didn't see it in a uh, screen x type of environment but it was just a regular old regal screening yeah, but fine um, to me. cool i yeah I, one other thing i just wanted to point out was that i think this movie has a really good sense of humor too absolutely I think, that's something um, they've held on to yeah, i think yeah so awesome well yeah glad we finally got time <laughs> we've both been sitting on our thoughts we've been at family get-togethers like save for the pod save for the pod <laughs> um so I don't know when yet, but I've seen Oppenheimer twice. I saw it in IMAX <laughs> and I saw it in 70 millimeter. Uh, Chelsea's going to see it soon, but uh, we would be remiss if we didn't just do a full Christopher oh. Nolan episode. Uh, and we're going to bring a guest on, our only repeat guest, James, James Dowden, who's been Yay. on a few times. Uh, I'm a huge Nolan fan, but like James is a legit Nolan head. I think it might be his favorite director if I had to guess. Uh, so I know he's going to love to come on and talk. He's seen Oppenheimer twice as well. So as soon as you see it, we're going to get that that episode out really soon. So Chelsea, good to see you. Always love doing this. I yes. think uh, we're, we're going to go ahead and jump to my my chat now with uh, with Sam about uh, about Barbie. So hope everybody enjoys that. And we're right about the time that this message is going to explode. All right, we're back, and I am uh, really excited to bring on a guest that Chelsea and I have been trying to get on the show for a while, uh, our good friend Sam Robb. How's it going, man? Doing well. I've been petitioning you on here for a couple of years and finally made it happen. <laughs> and what a movie to bring you on to talk about. You know, as a kid who was raised on G.I. Joe like no one's business, there is some small irony <laughs> in being on to talk about Barbie, but here, here we go. And the irony is we'd rather talk about Barbie than any of those shitty G.I. Joe movies. So, uh, well, I mean, where do you want to start? Ooh, uh, one of the things I thought that sort of stood out to me was just how badly Ryan Gosling needed this movie, in my opinion. And I'm sort of curious if, if you thought the same. That's really interesting. I don't know if I thought about that, but uh, now that you mention it, like, yeah, because he took this really long hiatus and uh, came back with Gray Man, which was not good. 
and I think we needed something to go, oh, yeah, we love this guy. See, I mean, in First Man before <laughs> Gray Man, uh, <laughs> while not a failure, I do think left everyone feeling just a little bit meh or cold. And, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like he's been in our lives for a long time, and I think Hollywood and us sort of all wanted him to be a bigger star than he's become. And, I don't know, it's really nice to see him sort of have a, a – surefire major huge hit that i feel like he's sort of been missing yeah i mean i think he's pretty popular but you're right like he makes interesting choices he likes to do um indie movies and he likes to do movies with complex stuff and make movies with nicholas winning ref in and uh people i think really just want him to you know make more crazy stupid love movies and stuff like that but i love my sad ryan Go- sad boy ryan gosling movies i just rewatched blade runner 2049 that's Maybe my favorite sad boy, Ryan Gosling and, movie. And I actually sort of forgot he was in that, to be honest with you, which, and again, I'll, I'll admit I'm not the biggest Blade Runner person. Saw it in theaters, haven't revisited it. Um, but I sort of like, oh, yeah, he was the the main the main uh, young Harrison Ford, you know, re- replacement there. But um, Yeah, yeah. He well, he just wants to be a real boy in that movie. <laughs> Between that and Drive and Pace, Place Beyond the Pines and Blue Valentine, that's, that's my, my sad boy. Um, but you know, he's great in this. I, and I will say, and we'll, we'll get to everyone else in the movie. Um, people are saying he stole the movie. I don't know if I agree with that. And people are saying like, he's definitely going to get a best supporting actor nomination. And I, I I don't know that he did anything to deserve that, but he was very funny. He beached. Uh, He beached. He beached so hard. He beached really well. Um, I, 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 look, his dance and singing routine was really impressive. So maybe there is that, but, uh, I, 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 yeah, I don't know if he stole the movie. I do think that was the song of the movie, though. I'm just Ken for me was definitely the, the song that hit home the most. As someone who's generally not a fan of sort of musical or I'm musical not numbers, either. that one was like, oh, this is this is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it was really good. And it kind of came out of nowhere and I didn't care. Um, I was like, why, why are we doing this all of a sudden? He's still wearing the Metallica font Ken fanny pack or whatever it was. And, uh, yeah, but he was, he was hilarious. I, uh, him wanting to find the patriarchy like it was a place was very funny to me. And his obsession with horses, which I I don't know what, where that came from, was so hilarious. The Mount Rushmore horses oh was, was definitely a highlight for me. Yes, Lost it. Lost it. But, uh, I mean, so you don't feel like he stole the show. Why is that? Hmm. Again, I think part of it is that I, generally speaking, think he's fantastic in everything I see him in. You know, even the things that don't work, I feel like they don't work in no fault due to him, you know, not showing up, mailing it in, poor job, whatever. It's just, you know, maybe not the right project or the right fit. But I I feel like he's generally speaking, and same with Margot Robbie, to be honest. Like, I can't say I've seen either of them in anything and been disappointed. Um, No, not at all. No. I mean, Ryan Gosling, I think he's really good at molding to what he's in. Um, but I think I said in the last episode, Margot Robbie is like a fucking unicorn, man. Like she's a one of one. I, I feel like at this point, I mean, even in, uh, did you see Babylon? I did. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. I, it, it, it's extremely flawed. Uh, but I had too much fun to say I didn't like it. She is unbelievable in that, movie. in that movie. Yes. Oh my God. The first time she like turns it on, you know, they put all the makeup on her and she looks really nervous. And then they say action and she smiles and goes, hi boys. I was like. There's like two people in the world that can do that. Like she just did that. And now she's like the female Warren Beatty. She's like producing and um, I mean, she's not directing, but she's like, I mean, she kind of like 
manage Barbie. I don't think she was the only decision maker, but I was even listening to an interview with Greta Gerwig. And she said when her and Noah Baumbach finished the screenplay, like she went to Margot Robbie, like, hey, can I direct this? And they had to like talk it out. Interesting. So, um, but speaking of that, I she's why I don't think that Ryan Gosling stole the show because she had the way more difficult role. Oh, uh, I mean, Ryan Gosling had the fun role, but all the different things she had to go through, the way she had to go from I'm a silly airhead doll to like melancholy on that bench. That's really hard. Without a doubt. Um, it's funny. I, I guess my main takeaway just from the movie as a whole, um, just coming in, was I would say I'm someone who fell into I really like this movie. I, I don't know if I loved it, but it was so much better than I expected it to be or than I think what I expected a Barbie movie to be. You know, after I saw the trailer, like, again, I, I thought it was very – I was very optimistic and thought it was promising, and then it certainly delivered on that. But if you just had told me a year ago they're making a Barbie movie, expectations would be pretty damn low. And I think this certainly, you know, pretty much maximized what a Barbie-based movie could be, which was super impressive. 100% agree with you. When I heard – when they announced it, I was like, this is just – Yeah, yeah. It's more corporate bullshit. And then when I heard they cast Margot Robbie, I was like – She's great, but that is the most obvious casting. Exactly. I mean, it's you almost have to do it. I think it was when I heard Greta Gerwig was going to direct. I was like, okay, you have my attention. Yeah, but, well, in the end, her and Noah together are just such a great team. And yeah, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm a big Noah fan. Uh, Squid and the Whales one of my one of my all timers. So I really like that one. You know, we're sidetracking a little bit. He doesn't really work for me, and I interesting. He, he's talented, totally talented. It just doesn't work for me. I, I I feel like, and I've said this to to Chelsea. He tries to, um, and obviously Barbie is not the case, but I feel like he often like gives us themes and stories that we should be able to relate to, but I can't because he gives us these themes with characters that I, I can't identify with, like marriage story. It's like everyone can identify with, well, we should be able to, Noah, but it's like this is a real story for real people. Well, she's an actress and he's a playwright. I'm like, I, I can't it's, identify it's with these so people. It's so New York and so hyper-specific to his yeah his his um, experience that it is a little hard to relate to. Yeah, this. but he's very talented and they're talented together. Um um, it, it was just really great to see how they – so the word I used was refreshing, and I used refreshing for a lot of different reasons. One was – well, let's just get into this. The set design. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Like, I, I can tell you right now, I think Oscars, you can just lock it up. Wardrobe and and production design, it, Barbie's going to win. Uh, but to not no, – No problems with that. <laughs> yeah, but to not use CGI uh, was just so refreshing, but – to use this like kind of like, I don't want to say new humor, but it was like I don't know. This is the most I've laughed at a movie in a theater in a long time. Interesting. Okay. To to use this uh, kind of refreshing humor with these more complex themes, uh, and and by the way, as we're going to get into these themes, you're probably wondering why are there two guys sitting here talking about Barbie, folks? I tried. Uh, Chelsea hasn't seen the movie yet. Lacey, who's been on the show before, uh, did not want to do it. She's seen it twice. And I also tried to get Taylor, the person who uh, designed the cover art for the podcast, to do it. She also did not seem interested. So uh, me and Sam were like, we'll just tackle it ourselves. Spencer didn't believe in me to, to handle the Oppenheimer part of the <laughs> podcast. So. <laughs> um, but so, so, yeah, so set design. 
you grieve me instantly. I mean, you, you've walked into that world and right away, it just, everything felt so real, so natural. Um, and with that intro too, what I thought was so great is I think they spent the exact correct amount of time with it being Barbie land, you know, before they ended the yes. Cause, and my wife definitely worth the same sentiment of if she had had to spend any more time with just, you know, the vapid high Barbie, high Barbie, high Barbie, it's like, I would have wanted to blow my brains out after 30 minutes of that. So I think capping that at like 18 minutes was the perfect amount of time to sort of be in the prototypical Barbie land before you, you know, you have to make a change because there is nothing there. It's so, it's so surface. It's funny, but you only want to be in that for so long before you want to kill yourself. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. I didn't even think about And the way they break up or keep that from going monotonous was so great where Barbie's dancing and then just says, Hey, do you guys ever think about death and her delivery? That line was so good. And like, I think I was taking a, a sip of water and almost spit it out all over the person in front of me because I was not expecting that. And it was so goddamn funny. Um, but you're right. I mean, and then the complications start. And that's what you're focused on when she's got the flat foot thing. And no, the second those those heels touch the ground, it's just, oh man, that's it's, it's a big moment. Yeah. So you're kind of like, and then also with the, um, the narration from the music, you know, when she falls off and they're like, damn girl, you all right? Yeah. Like you got all these little details to focus on. All this nuanced stuff was so brilliant. Um, so you're right. And then by the time it would have gotten repetitive, they leave. Yeah, exactly. Back, back in the real world, which again, was just such a fun, I mean, it again, pretty much goes exactly as you expect it to go, but it doesn't take away from just how funny that is seeing them, you know, rollerblading down the speech in those <laughs> outfits where even though 90s fashion is in, they still, you know, stick out like a sore thumb. Oh, man. The neon. Um, but that, the, the rollerblades are another detail. My sister had that Barbie. Like, the rollerblades looked identical. No, the devil was in the details, and they they really nailed every part of the – and, I mean, again, and someone who sells watches for a living – Ken's watch game, spot on. He has two <laughs> two watches on the wrist. If anyone wants to know more, call, call me. I've, I've got you. I didn't even think about that. I knew that was coming. But uh, yeah, it uh, all the little details, even the way the, the plastic waves look, um, it, it was all just so fantastic. And then when they get in the real world, the juxtaposition really makes all that stuff stand out. Um, but then you have all these characters and everybody gets just the right amount of screen time, the different Kens, the different Barbies. Uh, they try to be really inclusive with the different kinds of Barbies, um, of all kinds of different demographics. Uh, and then, uh, real quick, can I can I get some uh, Oscar talk from my boy Michael Sarah? Alan, poor Alan. poor old Alan. Which it is hilarious that I mean, simultaneously, you know, not shocking at all to see Michael Sarah in that role, and we it's the role he's been born to play and continues to play. Yet. He has not aged a day. <laughs> no, it's, it's George Michael. It's you know again. He's just right there, always the same, and just always seems so up for you know poking fun of the parody of himself. Which is not, whether whether that's you know this is the end, which is the opposite way of playing on the parody, or right. you know again him leaning into Alan was was fantastic. Oh my god, the line about nobody cares when Alan gets out because like in sync was all Alan's. Oh, yeah, and then the way he beats up the construction workers, where it's kind of like blurry in the background, 
Oh, it's just, that might have been the hardest I laughed in the entire movie, just because it's Michael Sarah, and that's why it's funny. I think the hardest laugh for me was uh, the repeated Midge jokes about the discontinued <laughs> when Will Ferrell's in there and sees Midge, and just it almost uh, reminded me of the moment in Elf when he's doing the Jack in the Box and gets scared when it pops out. It's the same reaction it when is. he sees Midge, like, ah! and he's just like, "Thought we discontinued her? <laughs> like, what's she doing here?" Well, just, you know who played Midge? I, I don't. Em- Emerald Fresnel, who wrote and directed uh, "Promise a Young Woman." Oh, d- did not know that. Love it. Well, that was they did a lot of the discontinued stuff. So, like the skipper, who's Broob Scorpiller, I actually knew about that. Of course, that, you did. Well, I, it was, I, my, think it was, I saw it was your like, job to know about that. That's right. Well, but I think I remember seeing that. Like, I love the '80s or something okay. back in the day. Strikes back. Yeah, it strikes back. Yeah, because uh, everybody's like, this is so insane that they made a doll whose boobs get bigger because she's going through puberty or something. Like, what the hell were they thinking? And then you had Kate McKinnon playing the weird Barbie, which was another just spot on. Yep. Every woman I've talked to that's seen Barbie, they were like, I had a weird Barbie, you know, and Kate McKinnon was perfect for it. And her place being like the Matrix, being Morpheus from Matrix was like perfect. You know? do, do you have any personal Barbie stories from your, your upbringing? I just remember my sister, like, which is so funny. If you knew my sister now, there's nothing about her that would be Barbie. But uh, she had a lot of Barbies, a lot of different Barbies. She had the the RV and dollhouses and stuff. So I don't know what she did with them. Sometimes I'd she'd be like, "Come play Barbies with me," and I'd be like, "All right." And you're just kind of like putting her in the car, but I don't know what I was doing. I would want to play Ninja Turtles, man. Of course. <laughs> what about you? Uh, so again, it was a GI Joe household with all brothers, and we did have some you know twelve inch dolls that were you know Barbie esque, but with camo. Uh, but my mom did have her childhood Barbie toys, which had did have the first ever Ken. And the story goes that little infant me or toddler me was playing with original Ken and took a big bite out of his hair. So her original Ken <laughs> doll just has a, a nice big bald spot on the back from, you know. Two, oh, because he had the realistic hair? He had the realistic hair, and uh, uh, two-year-old me took a bite and, you know, ru- ruined the original Ken. Well, I remember they joke about the the no genitals. They don't have any genitals when they're talking to the construction workers. And uh, I remember at some point in the 90s, they gave uh, Ken skin tone briefs. That you just like a part of the plastic mold because they're like, I guess this fleshy patch is getting a little too weird. (laughs) Um, So I I, I don't know if we can, you know, avoid talking about all the controversy and stuff, which I don't, I mean, I think I would say you and I both think it's just so silly. No, it's it's absurd. I mean, but but I will say the one thing I I honestly, honestly, I don't know if that's not a word, I wish. I could sort of experience differently is I would be curious. I wish I could have watched the film in a theater that wasn't Portland actually, because I do feel like the theater I was in, ah, just the film was at least the sense of humor in the film was very much catered towards. And I do think it would have been a more interesting experience, maybe watching it with a bit more of a mixed theater and seeing how, you know, maybe different, different orientations would have reacted. Cause I mean, I'll be honest. There, there was definitely some people on either side of me, who thought it was the funniest film they'd ever seen in their whole lives. <laughs> and again, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It wasn't quite there for me. Okay. Um, and so again, I just sort of, I, I like to watch that movie in a mall in Kansas, you know, and just see how it, how it plays there. Well, um, I mean, clearly it's hitting everywhere. No, no of course. Hit, yes. hit, hit a billion in like a week and a half, two weeks. And uh, I tell you right now. So I saw, I went to the theater that Saturday opening weekend. I saw Oppenheimer in Vancouver with, with my friend James um and then the next day Lacey and i went and saw barbie and that was the most packed i've seen a theater in 
I, I can't. I couldn't even tell you how long we were going to get concessions, and we walked in and we said, "Forget it!" Like every single line was going to the back of the theater. And I go to the theater a lot. I can't remember the last time a theater looked like this. It's crazy. It was really nice just to see people coming out because again, you and I are both film buffs. We're both members of Hollywood, so again, it's it's nice to see people that you don't normally see at the theater being as pumped for something as it is. And, and I and I am curious. You know, obviously the marketing campaign was brilliant, but I, I do just have to wonder. You know, if the marketing campaign was less or not as well planned out, you know, would the quality still have spoken for itself and would the masses still have really come out even if that marketing campaign wasn't so strong? That's a really good question. I, I think there's no denying how good the movie is and then the marketability of the the toy itself. So you're right. I don't know if like the we hadn't had a year of people anticipating Barmanheimer. I remember talking about this a year ago. Like, both these movies are coming out the same weekend, and I was saying, like, last summer, I'm going to go to both in the same weekend. But to see it pick up steam for the average person uh, was pretty crazy. But you're right. Would Barbie be a billion-dollar movie without the Barbenheimer marketing? I, I don't know if I can answer that. And again, you just hope it has larger implications for Hollywood of just... Cause I, I, mean, I, I feel like at least the message it sends is, you know, yes, I think people like you and me certainly favor, you know, original intellectual property versus just, you know, the repeated sequels, 100%. remakes, everything. But if something, ultimately, it's sort of like Jerry Seinfeld's view of comedy is just, is it funny? Doesn't care what the joke is. It's just ultimately whether it's appropriate, inappropriate, you know, blue or, 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 or safe. Is it funny? And with movies, it's the same thing. You know, I don't care if it's a Michael Bay dumb action movie or something super highbrow. If I love it and I think it's quality, I think people will turn out for that again, or at least ha- have faith they do. And so I'm just hoping that, you know, again, just putting, even if it is a, a recycled or, or IP thing, put it in the hands of people who actually have a vision, make this movie because we have a story, a script we believe in, because we have it in the hands of a, an artist that we believe in, and make the movie because we think it's going to be good, not just because uh, we need to fill this slate you know, we have this property, we need to make another movie, make it for the, you know, make it because we have to make it, not because you want to make it. No, you're right. And and I'm a, we know what's going to happen now. They're going to think, we have to make all these other toy movies because Barbie is so good. And you want to be like, we didn't go see Barbie because it was a toy movie. We saw it because you got Greta Gerwig to direct it. You got Margot Robbie and Brian Gosling to star in it. And you got Greta and Noah Baumbach to write it. That's why we went and saw it because we knew it was going to be good with who you had attached. If you guys start trying to treat the Mattel universe like the MCU, I think you're going to get – it's going to fall apart faster than the MCU did. I well, mean, they're already talking about a Hot Wheels movie. I mean, yeah. it depends on what they do with it, I guess. But, you know, it was all the little details. It wasn't just about Barbie. Getting Helen Mirren to narrate and make jokes, Absolutely. like fourth-wall jokes about how pretty Margot Robbie is, like, you know. Yeah, obviously, this is not the right actress to be making yeah, this exactly. <laughs> bringing up this issue. So – Margot Robbie and I was talking about how great she is. And it's all the little things when she first runs into uh, – what was the, the girl's name? Zoe? See, and I'll be honest. That was probably the part of the movie that resonated the least with me was the mother-daughter okay. <laughs> combination. Um, I, when looking back at the film, trying to you know remember the details because it's been a couple weeks for each of us, that was sort of the part that was most fuzzy that didn't really stick with me was sure. you know the mom and the daughter and sort of what they actually had to say. So other than the mom's monologue, obviously, of the – you know. That you know, you can be big but not too big. You know, you know, just sort of that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny when when she was doing that. I even I was sitting there going, "Yep, yep, absolutely." But as soon as she finished, all the women in the theater, my packed theater, like erupted in applause, and I was just like, "Yeah, I get it. 
I mean, no, as much as I can, I get it. No, and discussing that with with Caitlin as well, uh, I think that's my, your wife. Yes. Just for 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 uh, peeling b- b- behind the curtain. My wife, my mistress, and everything. Uh, I think my takeaway was again not any of those ideas. I think were particularly, you know, new ideas. You've heard similar things expressed in other meaning, but hearing them all so succinctly put together was impactful. But also, just you're not expecting that in a Barbie movie. So I think it's it's the sort of the medium that was the message. Like, the message. Again, like I said, not anything new. Any feminist, any person who is an adult and has a brain understands the, you know, the unfair bullshit, you know, double-handedness and all that stuff. But you're not expecting that to be the message in a Mattel Barbie movie. Well, that's the thing. Mattel really let them kind of go for it. They made fun of Mattel. They made fun of the misogyny and the history of Barbie. Uh, By the way, we didn't even talk about the 2001 opening. Yes, absolutely. Which was hilarious. Thankfully... I had Lacey watch 2001 earlier this year for the first time, so she really that, that was her. able to get to get it. Um, that little girl smashing the the dolls, uh, how perfect was that? But uh, yeah, I mean, they clearly from the beginning was like uh, feminism 101, and what they did with Ken flipping the, the script and making him go through what women go through in the in in the in the real world and to to some to some degree and i mean we're not everybody picked up on that we're not we're not you know <laughs> geniuses for catching that but you know to have the man who's dependent on his love interest and and what they think of him um and feeling lost in this world and being un, not as important and not having an important role in the world he's in i mean i got it i got what they were doing right away so to see these People, you know, we live in the addicted to outrage era, and um, I, I, I don't think those people obviously don't have a right to be upset because not only is there truth in it, but it wasn't mean spirited, and, and that's why I don't understand why anybody's getting upset. I mean, I get it; it's the idea, identity politics horseshit. But like I said, it's not mean spirited; it's just trying to have a conversation. Again, I, I really try and not give the, those people much much thought or time. You're a smart man; not worth it. Yeah, it's. Again, you have the vocal minority two percent on either side of anything that drives so much of the conversation, and I just have no no tolerance for it. So, um, so you said a couple of times this movie it totally didn't work for you. What didn't work other than the the American Ferrera plotline? You know, probably just that. Uh, at least as a young me, I can relate to Ken quite a bit, and you know, maybe it just uh, hit home a little too hard. <laughs> In what way? Uh, high school me. Uh, so my now wife, Caitlin, um, basically I was in the friend zone for four years in high school and, <laughs> wow, it, and, wow. and it was always girls night. And again, just sort of felt like, you know, I just couldn't grapple with how, you know, she didn't want to be with me and how I was, and it, it really, you know, so much of my identity was tied up in being in love with her. And that was, um, a big problem. And it was, you know, in hindsight, definitely some pathetic moments with that. Um, but honestly, yeah, just some some moments back then of being, you know, feeling left out in the cold of, you know, not being enough, not being desired. And, um, you know, thank God I grew out of that. And obviously, you know, things worked out in the end. But there was, I think, some part of younger than me that younger me that could definitely relate to uh, the struggles Ken was having. Yeah. And look at you now. You've got your own Mojo Dojo Casa house. And I, I got Barbie. You're, I, and and I got Barbie it. and you're enough, you know. But no, but and again, not to say that, that was, it's harder to put on what what didn't work for me. I, I guess honestly, it might just be that I think I think there is a ceiling of how great a Barbie movie can be. Absolutely, that, and I, I think maybe that's just it for me. That no matter how good Barbie was, 
it's still a movie about a Mattel toy line that, you know, and that's where I said, I think they did as good or as good of a job with Barbie as they could. But I, I think for me, it does have some level. I, there's no world where Barbie could be, there will be blood. Yeah, you know, they're just well. <laughs> you know, it just, it's just there, there's no Barbie that's going to reach those heights for me. And I, yeah, again, I, I think it did, but that's where, and also I don't know, sense of humor. Um, I would just generally say PG thirteen is not going to tickle my funny bone in all the hardest ways. Okay, at least from from a film film standpoint. Yeah. I'd like to watch it again. I kind of wonder. I think I told Chelsea I gave it four and a half stars in Letterboxd, and I wonder if I if I see it again, would I keep it there? Would I shave half a star off? Um, I've heard a lot of feedback that uh uh the the middle didn't work for a lot of people when when the will ferrell stuff's going on uh it slowed down a little too much i mean honestly you're right they they needed to go in the real world to break things up but to me the best part was when uh she has that moment on the park bench i kind of choked up and i mean nothing was being said i was like they're pulling so much um interpersonal human connection with with without saying a word and that's that's really impressive um, but what I was saying earlier about Margot Robbie, her little nuanced mannerisms, uh, the way she shifts on that bench gradually, uh, the way when she first walks up to the, the daughter, it makes that pose like it's me, Barbie. Like every little thing about how she does her arms and everything is so different than anything Margot Robbie's done in another movie. Um, she just made all these really smart choices. And then you have the ending, which was, I mean, so much of the movie would felt like Wizard of Oz. There was so much. I hadn't thought of it from that perspective. A lot of Wizard of Oz. Uh, you know, Rhea Perlman was was the great, powerful Oz, and then they have that moment at the end. You had the power the whole time, and you know, just the magical nature of uh, you know they go into a different world, and uh, that was kind of kind of an interesting uh, thing. It, and it felt like the old Hollywood, um, like singing in the rain and stuff like that too. Well, and this leads me actually one question I have for you: What is your double feature with Barbie, and why? Oh, uh, no country for old men. So you got no, you got the no, no young men and no old men. No, no. Um, that's interesting. Um, I don't know. Do you, I feel like you have one. I, I do. And it just sort of hit me in the middle of the film. Uh, I thought the parallels to fight club were really interesting, actually. Holy shit. I mean, Barbie, that works Barbie, so much better than I would have thought. Barbie literally says, you're not your car. You're not your house. You're not your fucking khakis. Like she literally gives the fight club rant. <laughs> In the middle of Barbie. Oh, my God. And then, I mean, honestly, these are, outside of Crazy Stupid Love, maybe the best abs since Brad Pitt in Fight Club, so there's that parallel, too. But, honestly, I, I sort of feel like this is a PG-13 Fight Club for women, essentially. That's really interesting. I see what you're saying. And I, and I think that Barbie, first of all, so I was just having this conversation, like, Fight Club is so layered and complicated, and I think that people either... I think people misunderstand it and like it, or people think it's <laughs> yes. dumb and don't like it. And I've listened to it, uh, or I've watched it and listened to people talk about it, and you realize how many different themes are going on. I kind of don't even know if Chuck Panalik knew what he was trying to write. I think it feels like a stream of consciousness he was just trying to get out. But I've, I've realized it's kind of like the lamentation about the plight of the Gen Xer is kind of what Fight Club is, but there's a lot going on there. And I feel the same way about Barbie. Like, it's not just about, you know, the the gender dichotomy and 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 social structures and and the patriarchy and all that. Because she's having a lot of existential questions, and even at the end, she didn't find her place. She's like, I still have a lot to figure out, and there's all this this really complex theme. So, I mean, you're I, right. That's I mean, I think similar. It's, you know, the the biggest similar similarity to me is just 
whether you're a man or female, I think in America specifically, you have been sold a bill of goods of either, you know, the American dream and what your life is supposed to be, what you're supposed to care about, who you're supposed to be. And again, well, yes, definitely it's, I, I think any smart person would say it's particularly hard or unfair, you know, for women versus men. Men still have the expectation of what you're supposed to look like, how successful you're supposed to be, what's supposed to matter. You're supposed to be able to afford a, you know, a certain car, a certain lifestyle, whatever. Yeah. And just, you know, I think the hope for me is that, again, this helps young women or, you know, whoever's watching Barbie movies, young person realize this is bullshit. It doesn't matter. Again, you shouldn't care about the Barbie dream house, about the Barbie Corvette, about the Barbie, right. again, the clothes, it's, it's all vapid. It doesn't matter. And I, again, I really think that that was the stuff that, you know, came away from fight club for me was, you know, we've all been raised to think we're going to be rock stars, movie stars, materialism, yeah. but, but we're not, we're slowly yeah. realizing that. And, you know, we're very pissed off about it. And that's essentially, I think, again, when the things break in Barbie land, it's when they realize that this is all, you know, it's all baloney. Um, no, I, I think that's, I think that's well said. And even, even Ken at the end, um, kind of goes to the same thing. He kind of figured out he was being ridiculous, but he also has to figure out who he is. And, you know, the other thing is like one of the complaints is everyone's saying all the guys were stupid. And I'm like, I don't know that anybody was that smart. Cause once Ken comes back with the patriarchy, it doesn't take much for all the women to become beer waitresses you know what i mean so it, also I, these are fictional characters and fictional exactly. dolls and <laughs> exactly and um but real quick some of the other some of the other funny i mean there's so many little funny parts even like it never ended like ken would say something funny and then the way he'd slide off the hood of the car was just so funny um i think the matchbox 20 sing along on the beach that was to, to push was maybe the highlight of the of the comedy for me i think all the music you had the uh indigo girls i know but when you have eight kens singing sitting around all playing acoustic <laughs> guitar singing fucking matchbox it's just it was it, it, why so that just, song do you think you think it's because the literal interpretation of the, I mean, lyrics? the literal lyrics of you know i'm gonna take you yeah I mean, i'm gonna just, push you around yep yeah, push you around i'm gonna take you for granted it's all so spot on but also just I mean, in a weird way, I almost made this comparison 10 minutes ago when I said, you know, what is the threshold of how good a Barbie movie can be? It's sort of like Matchbox 20. You could, they could make the best album possible for that band. <laughs> it's still only going to be so good. And so that I think sure. there's a parallel there. And, and just, I mean, again, it's your basic bitch boy sitting around playing that, which also, I, I think also a Noah Baumbach throwback to Squid and the Whale when Jesse Eisenberg is a young, you know, 17 year old kid in high school. He thinks he's really, you know, wise and cultured, you know, playing Pink Floyd on the acoustic guitar. And he actually claims that he wrote the song himself to try and impress girls at his school. It's just, again, it's it's that same character just in Ken Land, you know, playing the song on the beach, that's trying to impress girls with acoustic guitars. And sure. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's interesting. Um, like, it was just such a funnier choice than Wonderwall. Like, the whole Wonderwall oh, yeah. is so played out of, like, so played yeah, that's out. what every guy does with acoustic guitar, where this is just such a funnier choice. Oh, and, yeah. And, and I think, just again, a, just a great boil down that they made all the right choices with this movie. They did. I, I was not expecting that song. And so when he started playing it for the first time, I was just like, wow. Because here's the thing, I'm a little older than you, and I remember distinctly. Oh, fourth grade. I remember that album cover with the, the sort of larger guy and, like, the leather motorcycle helmet oh, man. my parents loved that album i was like eighth ninth grade when that first Smashbox 20 album came out and it was everywhere 2 a.m was right after that, push that, that was the one i liked that was that was more my my jam on it um but that was the end of good 90s alt rock i think was that album so but there was two there's two things i really wanted to point out was well first of all before i get to that 
What was your reaction when they dropped that Zack Snyder Justice League joke? Great, great. Actually, funny. I mean, the one reference you just reminded me of, too, that that really hit home for me, but also for the Portland crowd, was the Stephen Malkmus of payment joke. Where it's like, (laughs) that is, I mean, a deep cut joke. That that was like the one where I think me and one other guy in the theater were laughing hard at that That's how I felt about the the Justice League joke. I kind of like... I laughed and yep, looked around great. and nobody else, everybody seemed confused. Yeah, no, it, and, there, and there was just those little nuggets for everybody. Certain things hit with you, certain things didn't, but yeah, the Stephen Malcolm mystery is like, fuck, that's great. But there were two jokes that I, from my experience, felt like they hit both both genders. So when they were like the the nihilist Barbie or whatever, what do they call her? The I'm giving up Barbie or the depression Barbie? <laughs> I'm giving up Barbie. And, and they were like, yeah, you're going to sit around in sweatpants and watch the BBC Pride and Prejudice. Like every woman I know is like, I felt attacked when they, they made that joke. But on the flip side, when, uh, when they were like, are you watching The Godfather? And he starts <laughs> mansplaining. Her. I was like, oh, is, is that what we're doing? We're going to The Godfather yeah. now? And then I like kind of calmed down. I was like, Leave my godfather alone. No, we, we all had those moments like, oh, yeah, like a little, little guilty there. And again, and that's important. We all have Barbie-isms in us and Ken-isms. It's, it's okay. Just recognize uh, recognize the flaws and, and try and grow. I feel like I have Alan-isms. But uh, anyway, so, you know, we review movies on this this podcast with a one, two, three scale. Uh, three being get out and see it. Two, get around to it. One, watch at your own risk. Uh, I mean – I, I have no choice but to give this movie an out like a, a exclamatory three. Definitely. I mean, again, that that scale is a little tough <laughs> to find. I, I didn't I, want to make it too complex. <laughs> yeah, but definitely go out and see it. Fantastic. Um, again, want to rewatch it too. It's been a couple weeks, and would, would certainly like to see it a second time and get to pay attention to some of those little details more that maybe didn't hit the first time. Lacey actually liked it better the second time. She went back and saw it with a friend, and she had more critiques after the first time but the second time she was like it's really funny so yeah i'd be curious to see it again for sure john cena the the merman <laughs> uh, we didn't bring up john cena there's so much going on in this movie well, and the, the one right I, when i was going back and looking through the casting the one that didn't hit for me i, I don't know if you watched the show sex ed or sex education I, no, i've Netflix. never seen it okay one of the main characters in that was one of the kens and i never would have recognized him in that you know he had like a goatee and uh sort of you know buzz head with blonde it's like man had no no idea he was in it um yeah, yeah I, re- I really love the show Dairy Girls, and one of the characters on there, she was in it, and I didn't realize it until I looked at IMDb later, and Lacey was like, oh, you didn't recognize her? I was like, I didn't even notice she was in it. What, one other thought I had, too, that I thought was sort of interesting, uh, what a rough year for the name Ken, whether it's Kendall from Succession or Ken from Barbie. It almost seems like, again, I know, and my mom's named Karen, too, which has been a rough couple of years for that name, and, <laughs> but I almost feel like Ken might be the new new uh, male Karen. I don't know. A lot of a lot of sympathizing for Ken now. So I guess we'll. There, a lot of people saying you're enough. So am I saying that right? Ken enough. Ken enough. I think you just say enough. Enough. I, th- I think you got it the first time. <laughs> All right. Well, Sam is great. Have to have you back on. Uh, I think we kind of flirted with. Uh, it's going to be a big Scorsese movie later this year, man. You want to do a big Scorsese episode of me and Chelsea? Can't wait. We'll knock that out. But if you want to come back sooner, you're welcome anytime. I'm happy to come anytime. Thanks for having me. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, we are on Instagram. We're not on Twitter anymore because fuck Twitter. Um, you can also X. email <laughs> X. You can email us at themarqueespotlight at gmail.com to give us feedback, anything you want to hear. And if you're enjoying the show, please like, subscribe, tell a friend, or do whatever you want. You're an adult. So for the Marquee Spotlight, I am Spencer Bailey for Chelsea Burnett saying we'll see you.
Thanks for listening. The Marquee Spotlight is recorded in Portland with music composed and produced by Josh Colopy and cover art created by Taylor Ingle. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for updates on new episodes. And if you like the show, please write a review and share with others. 